We read from Holy Scripture now this morning, and we read this morning the last chapter of the Epistle to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord my dearly beloved. I beseech Iodias and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I treat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, Think on these things, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now, ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. 
Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you. Chiefly, they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And this morning we consider the Instruction and Confession of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 32. Since then we are delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ without any merit of ours. Why must we still do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image, that so we may testify by the whole of our conduct our gratitude to God for his blessings, and that he may be praised by us, also that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof, and that by our godly conversation others may be gained to Christ. Cannot they then be saved who, continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives, are not converted to God? By no means. For the Holy Scripture declares that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, covetous man, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or any such like, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we consider now this very important introductory Lord's Day on the third and final section of the Catechism on our thanksgiving. The knowledge of our misery has been taught, the knowledge of our deliverance has been taught, and now the knowledge of our gratitude or thanksgiving is the main theme of this section. As we examine this Lord's Day and as we enter into this section, it's very important that we understand the approach and the instruction of the Catechism here rightly. Heretics of all sorts have all sorts of ways that they attempt to steal away the faith, to trouble the faith, to disturb and trip up the faith of the people of God. That's essentially how they work. It's not simply that they teach various false doctrines but they do so in order to take your faith away from the truth, which is Jesus Christ, of course. And they have many ways to do that. In fact, one, one good sign that what you're hearing is not the truth is when you find your faith disturbed. 
when you begin to question your faith or even doubt your own faith. Something's wrong there. And that can be done from all sorts of angles and perspectives. And, of course, many heresies and heretics and their doctrines have to do with the subject matter that we consider here in Lord's Day 32 and subsequent Lord's Days. And namely, that part of our knowledge and faith that has to do with good works. And since good works are related to the law, they have to do with the law. And they have to do with our deliverance, our salvation, and blessings, and all sorts of things. And you may say that there's really two ways and from two directions that errors come. One is those that would take your faith away from Jesus Christ by placing your trust in yourself, by giving to your works, good works, obedience to the law, a place that it does not have in salvation, namely a place whereby those works receive, earn, or our conditions to that salvation. But then on the other side are those who often, because of fear, fear over those heresies and those doctrines that are false, give no place to good works. Perhaps might even take a Lord's Day such as this and turn it on its head, teaching that which it does not teach. If you study various errors of whatever sort they may, you will often find out that they attempt to oversimplify oversimplify what salvation is and how it's received and how it's worked out. Often it's done under the guise of, well, it's a simple gospel. The Scriptures are clear, and that is so true. The gospel of our salvation is a very simple and plain, easy-to-understand gospel. But the heretic prays on that. Often they will have slogans, slogans that they live by, which, if you study, aren't true. They can be contradicted in Scripture. They pit Scripture against Scripture or truth against truth. One of the things that I would like you to contemplate this morning is the beauty of this Lord's Day is that of the gospel itself, our salvation. It is beautiful and rich beyond our imagination. There's a reason why the gospel of the kingdom of heaven is likened to a pearl of great price or jewels. Think, for example, of the most beautiful jewel that you could possibly imagine. A diamond, let's say, as big as this room. We would know how precious it is, but you would discover something about the truth, how rich it is. The truth isn't complicated, but it is rich. One could stare into that jewel from one 
spot and do that for a long time and see ever new facets and amazing things about that beautiful jewel. But then if one moves and looks at it from a different angle, one sees even more things. That's our salvation because that's our God. Our God is a rich and deep, unfathomable God. And so is His greatest work, salvation. If you doubt me on that, imagine living in the new creation, which all by itself will be beyond your imagination, the Scriptures say. You couldn't even imagine what it's going to be like, but living there for, say, oh, a million years, if we may so speak. And what will you be doing? You will be meditating upon the greatness of God and His salvation of you. That's after a million years. You'll be seeing new things. There will be mercies that are new every day, as it were. And we must remember that. And the richness of that salvation is found here, even in this Lord's Day. That means there's things with regard to this Lord's Day and what follows that are amazing and rich, may even raise questions that need to be considered and dealt with, which the church has. The church understands that it can look at the salvation of our God from the perspective of God Himself, the eternal character of that salvation, or the perspective of of the cross itself, or from the perspective of yourself and your life. And you find that there's maybe questions. There's one right here in the Lord's Day. You read, for example, that Christ has redeemed us and delivered us by His blood and renews us. By that we enter into the kingdom. By that we are members of the kingdom. And then you read question and answer 87, which says that no one chaste person, idolater, adulterer, covetous man is converted, cannot be saved. And we look at something like that, and we look at it in the light of ourselves, we say, how can this be? What, what's going on here? How do we explain these things? Do we dismiss question and answer 87? The answer is no, we can't. In fact, question and answer 87 is what underlies the very issue of discipline that we considered in the previous Lord's Day. How is it? On what basis are members excommunicated out of the church? And you could say, well, question and answer 87, that's why. Those who live that way are wicked, ungrateful. They're not converted. Well, what about me? What about you? Do we not commit these sins? Are we not then delivered? And does that mean that the person that's even excommunicated of the church can't be converted, can't be changed? And the answer is no. No, our salvation is rich. It is amazing. Now what we're going to look at, what's taught here in this Lord's Day, is a lot. We can look at it from a lot of different perspectives, but the main idea is the necessity of good works, the necessity of them. And we're going to look at it this morning from the perspective of Christ. 
the necessity of good works being Christ. And in the first place, that Christ has redeemed us. Why must we do good works? The answer is because Christ has redeemed us. In the second place, we're going to consider the answer to that question, why must we do good works, from the point that Christ is a complete Savior. And lastly, why must we do good works? Because Christ has a purpose for them. He gives them purpose. So let's look at that Lord's Day, this Lord's Day, from those three perspectives. The question of Lord's Day 32 is very important for the Reformed faith. And yes, many a heretic wished it wasn't phrased that way, but it is. Why must we do good works? That should not be a question. That should be not something we debate. The child of God must do good works. And if you think that's a minor point in the Lord's Day, realize that the entire Lord's Day is about that point. I'm not pulling a minor point out of the Lord's Day and making a big deal out of it. But it is the question of 86. Notice the question is not, must we, but why? The must is assumed. The Reformed faith considered there wouldn't be anybody, possibly, who's a child of God and of the Reformed faith who understands the truth that would even question that. And yet it's questioned. Even further proof that it shouldn't be questioned is number 87. Question answer 87. How necessary are good works? How important are they? And the answer is, well, if someone doesn't live in them, then they aren't saved. They cannot be saved. Then they're wicked and ungrateful. They're unconverted. That's how necessary they are. Now, that is questioned. And there's a very subtle way that that's done. It has been done in our churches. It has been done by office bearers, even ministers. But it may be. Now, how it's done in our circles or with those who would subscribe to the Heidelberg Catechism is this way. Number one, there is a radical, radical difference between the third and the second part of the Heidelberg Catechism. The second part, as we all know, is about our deliverance. So when we get to the subject of Lord's Day 32, it has nothing to do with our deliverance. It only has to do with our thankfulness. So when we talk about good works, when we talk about why we must do them, one must only look at them from the perspective of thankfulness. And that's the only motive, really, for doing them. No other motive whatsoever. They have no other purpose or use. Often it's put this way, that they are the blessings of salvation. They are not part of that salvation itself. And if you say, prove that, then they say, well, look at the question. Look at the answer. Christ having delivered us. See, we are delivered. He has delivered us. Our deliverance is all in the past. So there's no deliverance in the future. There's no deliverance 
that we're experiencing now, there's no deliverance to be had other than what Christ has already done. We'll even come back and say, Christ, you see, is a complete Savior. Christ has completed our salvation. It's finished. He said so on the cross. That's not true. And that's not how we read the Heidelberg Catechism. That's not how it may be read. And in fact, if one looks very carefully, one will discover many of the things that are brought up in this third section that are part of the third section, namely those which have to do with obedience to the law of God and prayer, are in fact already addressed in the section on deliverance. I don't have time to go through that right now, but you can read it for yourself. There are Lord's Days. There are phrases in the Lord's Days. Even in, as I pointed out to you with regard to the sacraments, that have to do with that aspect of salvation that is the subject matter of the third part of the Heidelberg Catechism under thanksgiving. What I want to do this morning is set forth the reality that the question, why must we do good works, has to do with our redemption and has to do with one great aspect of that deliverance. And that when the Catechism says we are redeemed and delivered in the past by His blood, it does not mean to say that's the extent of the deliverance, that that which follows, that which it addresses in the renewal of the Holy Spirit is part of that deliverance. We're going to talk about that in the second point. But I do want to look at the must of good works simply being answered by that, well, it's not the main clause, that part of the answer which says, well, Christ having redeemed and delivered us by His blood also does something. But let's not overlook that first part. It's very, very important. It's very, very important because the heretic and the false teacher also inserts good works into that. That good works and our life of good works and what we do has something to do with our redemption, has something to do with our deliverance of what Christ has already done. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. One of the great ways is that of the Arminian who says, number one, that Christ has redeemed and delivered everyone. That the redemption of the blood of Christ was for every single soul. The blood of Jesus Christ was spilled for the sins of the whole human race and paid for those sins. They were redeemed. There was a deliverance there. But now, whether that deliverance is for you, whether it's effective for you, depends upon whether you believe that or not. You see, that's the heart of the whole Arminian gospel. And that's what's meant when we say they make faith a condition. Now, one of the things that eliminates all of that is to understand a limited atonement. That when it says us, it's referring to those whom God has chosen in eternity. It's referring to those whom God gives faith. It is a particular redemption. It is a particular deliverance. And as soon as you say that, by the way, you see how faith can no longer be a condition. 
doesn't matter how you speak of faith, really. Faith then cannot be a condition because it's included in the deliverance. It's part of the redemption. When Christ redeemed me and He redeemed you, He redeemed us from this perspective that He earned for us the right to be saved, to receive faith, for God to be gracious unto us. That's the answer to those who would say the reason why you must do good works or you must believe or doesn't really matter how you put it, that that's the decisive thing when it comes to your salvation. It's what makes that salvation effective. The Heidelberg Catechism rejects all of that. We'll have none of that. Now having said that, What I would like us to lay hold of with regard especially to the richness of our salvation is this, however, that when one asks the question, why must we do good works, part of the answer is because Christ has redeemed and delivered us. Now let's not misunderstand that. That redeeming and delivering of us has primarily a legal aspect to it. It has to do with the imputation of the Christ's righteousness, which has been explained to us. What it's referring to there is the fact that Christ, by his dead and the shedding of his blood, which is why it talks about delivering us by his blood. Notice that. It's referring to what Christ did by his death. That's not all Christ did. That's not all Christ does to those who would take the catechism and put it in a box and say that our redemption is the extent of our salvation. What Christ did at the cross is the extent that when Christ said, it is finished, what He said is, there is no more salvation. There's nothing more to come. That's false. What the Catechism is referring there is what Christ did by His death. He also works by His resurrection. He's working now. He's busy now. When Christ said it is finished, what He meant was the redemption is finished. The atonement is over. The payment of sin is done. So if we can, for imagine, for a minute, imagine ourselves as prisoners in a cage. We've been sentenced to death. We're in a cage, dead. God has pronounced a sentence in the death of Jesus Christ, that that prisoner in the cage is now free. The penalty that had been pronounced by the judge has been fully satisfied. The prisoner in the cage has the right to go free. But that's not all we're saying. We're talking about God, God's sentence, God's deliverance, the justice and righteousness of God What we're really saying is that prisoner must go free. Now from the perspective of this prisoner, everything changes at that moment. Imagine you're the prisoner. Imagine you have some life in you. You're really dead. But let's imagine now, we're talking about God's salvation and its riches. God gives us a faith that enlivens us. And here comes someone to tell us, you've been let free. The judge has pronounced you innocent. All of your sins have been paid for. You mean these sins that I could never pay for? You mean these sins 
All paid for. Yep, they're all paid for. Not only this, but this is a prisoner who understands he will sin and continue to sin. Those are all paid for too. Yes, you're, you're free. Now, from the perspective of the prisoner, everything changes at that moment. He understands that there's nothing he can do in the cage. There's nothing he can do from the perspective of the cage that will earn for him and merit for him and achieve for him that which the judge has sentenced, that which the judge has pronounced. There's nothing that can alter that or change that. Whether he remains in the prison or he gets out of the prison doesn't really matter. He's free. The judge has said so. Even if he would stay in that prison, every day that he was there would be radically different. That you see is the child of God. That's the child of God when he first understands his redemption and his deliverance in Christ. Everything changes. His perspective changes. His position before the law of God changes. And that is really where the law of God comes in. You know, if all the law of God taught us was our misery, then we would be no different than any other prisoner in the cage. All that law would be was the continual sentence of the righteous judge saying, guilty, 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 guilty. And that happens with all men. All men are before the law of God guilty and cursed. Cursed with death. Cursed with the curse that says you stay in that prison and you will rot in that prison. You will never get out of that prison. But that's not all the law does, does it? Now, some say it, that's all it does. But no, 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 not if you've been redeemed and not if you've been delivered, then the law changes now. Does the law go away? Does it no longer speak? Does it no longer say what it says? And the Heidelberg Catechism says, no. But it's got an entirely different use now. You stand before that law of God totally different. And this is what the Bible refers to when it says we've been delivered from the law. It uses that light language. So radically different is the child of God before that law of God, that word of God. On the one hand, he hears this law of God, thou shalt and thou shalt not. And the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Cursed is the man that doesn't fulfill all this law. And the other one, he hears the word of God that says, but you're free. Now free in what sense? And the answer is freedom from that curse of the law. Free from the damnation of that law. What a difference that makes. What a difference in perspective that makes. Even if now, if we could talk about that prisoner staying in the cage, from that moment on, everything that that prisoner does isn't done, even in his own mind and heart and soul, in order to get out of the prison, in order, in order to have the judge look at him favorably, to merit the idea of the judge to say, you know, I think I'll let that one go free. No, that's been done. See how it changes everything? But there's more. You see, if an earthly judge did that, or I did that, maybe there's still, maybe still there's the possibility that you're left to rot in that cage after all. Or even that an earthly judge says that you should stay there to learn a few lessons and still experience all the horrors of being in that cage. But not God. You see, when God earns the right to do something, when He, when he earns in Himself the right to forgive all of our sins, He does. That's what the Arminian doesn't understand. 
So God the judge doesn't simply come and say, you have the right to go free. You may go free. Doesn't even come along and say, you may go free, and now it's up to you to be free. No, there's a must there. In that very first line of the Heidelberg Catechism, when it says, Christ having redeemed and delivered us, also renews, even before you go to the also, you have to lay hold of the fact that one of the reasons we must do good works, and please understand that the doing of the good works then is referring to the life of the prisoner outside the cage. It's talking about his actual release from the power of that cage to bind and hold him. It's talking about an aspect of that deliverance that delivers him not only from the guilt and the punishment of the judge for his sins and his trespasses, but actually delivers him from those sins and the power of them. So that no longer does he remain in the jail. He's allowed out. And he's given actual freedom. Freedom to obey the king and follow the king and serve the king and love the king. And that's what the child of God in the cage understands. And we may never minimize that. Even before we go on to talk about the renewal, the child of God must know that when God says, all of your sins are paid for, all of your sins are atoned for, there is not one penny, there is not anything, not death, not sickness, anything that I consider payment for your sins, atonement. Not only that, exactly because I pronounced that means you go free. I'm going to unlock the cage. I'm going to give you life. You're dead. You can't take one foot, one step. You can't even hear my words and understand me unless I give you life. Now, if you want to understand the connection between the first and the second part of the sermon, or the first and the second part of that sentence, Christ having redeemed and delivered us, also renews us, you have to understand that that's inseparable. And from a very real point, it's instantaneous. Even when we understand that the renewal of Christ by the Holy Spirit is a lifelong work, and it is, we're going to run into this language, and I'm going to point it out. When you get to the life of thankfulness in the third part of the catechism, there's a phrase that keeps showing up. More and more. More and more united to Christ. You say, how could that be? More and more holy. More and more. Why? Because this is a renewal that occurs your whole life. That's what sanctification is all about. At the same time, the Reformed faith teaches it's in an instant. And it occurs at the same instant, the same time that one understands he's justified. That God has forgiven him. And, and if you say why that is, and the answer is because we're dead and we're made alive. And the only way we can be made alive is when God places His Spirit in us. And we receive that Spirit. We receive faith. And through faith we receive everything. Why? Because faith receives Christ, and in Christ is everything. And what the Catechism is doing is pointing out that necessity has to do with that. How necessary are good works? The answer is, if you have been redeemed, then you are freed from the power of sin in an instant. There's something that goes on that allows you to see the whole of your salvation, all of your salvation, the deliverance and the wonder of it. You just don't look at it and say, well, God's forgiven my sins. 
But the child of God understands the very fact that I know that, the very fact that I understand that, the very fact that I've heard that sentence and no longer the sentence, you're dead, you're cursed, you're going to hell, means an act of God has been performed that has enlivened me. I have ears to hear, eyes to see. I'm alive. I'm outside the cage. And that's what's being explained. Now if you say why that is, and I'm making a deal out of this because I'm countering an argument that has come up recently which applies the completeness of Jesus as a Savior. What they mean is this. You've been redeemed and delivered and therefore you really don't have to do good works. You may even talk about that. Otherwise you deny that Jesus is a complete Savior. If you want to talk about the fact that you must do this thing and you must live this way and you must behave, you're denying Jesus as a complete Savior. You're denying that He redeemed and delivered you. You're denying that. And it's exactly the opposite. It's when you speak that way and talk that way and think that way, when you locate all of your salvation in justification and you say, that's the limit of it, that's the extent of it. And now we're just talking about thanksgiving. Now we're just talking about the blessings of salvation. That's an error. A grievous error. Because Jesus is a complete Savior. And that's what's being taught here. And if you doubt me on this, this is Protestant Reform doctrine. Our fathers are faithful to this. Read Herman Hooksma on this Lord's Day. I quoted a section of it in the meditation. And he brings up that point. Jesus is a complete Savior, and he brings it up in this connection. The answer to the question, why must we do good works, is basically this. Because God doesn't simply justify us. He sanctifies us. That's part of his salvation. That belongs to it. The thanksgiving of that salvation isn't simply, I'm thankful God has forgiven all my sins. That's a big part of it. Every time we approach the throne of grace, we're reminded of how God has forgiven our sins and we ought to be thankful. But it's thankfulness also for the renewal of the Holy Spirit that we recognize as going on. That's the idea of the Lord's Day. And why are we thankful? Because it's a part of our salvation. You understand what it means if it's not? What that means then is the good works you do and the things we do, I've done by my own strength and my own power. That's horrible. What can we do by our own strength and by our own power? What can we do by our own will? There's nothing good in us by nature. Nothing. No, if there's anything good, anything lovely, anything worth doing, it's because the Spirit has renewed us and that renewal is our salvation, our deliverance. And that's part of what we give thanks for. It's part of what we pray for. We're going to learn when we get to prayer. In the light of the law, we're going to discover how far short we are to that perfection. That perfection of our salvation. When it's all complete and all said and done, the purity of our life, we realize that and we pray for that and we long for that. And if you ask why it is, the answer is because Christ is a complete Savior. Don't let anybody take that away from you. It's exactly because Christ is a complete Savior. He doesn't leave me in the prison. Takes me out. Even takes me out in the way of commandments. Even takes me out in the way of admonition. Even strengthens me that way. Because that's the other falsity here. The idea is that you're only sanctified if you hear what God has done. 
that the way of sanctification is the way of hearing, well, God has forgiven your sins, and then it's automatic. Don't tell me how to live. That would be the law, and the law is contrary to the gospel. None of that is true. None of that is true. It's not reformed. It's not confessional. It's the imagination of men who are terrified by good works, terrified that if you teach the truth of good works, then you're not teaching. You're not teaching the truth. You're teaching that which is Arminian. You're teaching the gospel of man. None of that's true. However, the must of good works is that Jesus is a complete Savior. Why? Why does this church exercise discipline? Why do we excommunicate those who live wicked and grateful lives? Why is it we're going to be preaching the law of God and prayer? Why are there admonitions? Why are there exhortations? And the answer is because Jesus is a complete Savior. He covers it all. And He does it all. And He uses His own means and His own way according to His own purpose. Change that and you actually deny Jesus is a complete Savior. It's those who assert that which are actually denying the completeness of Jesus' salvation. It's one of the things we brought up even with regard to discipline. One of the reasons that it's so horrible that someone lives and walks in sin, who confesses the name of Christ, who confesses their sins are forgiven, is that they're denying that in their walk of life. It doesn't matter what they confess. They're denying it in their walk of life. They're giving occasion for the ungodly to blaspheme. See? So much for your Savior. He doesn't really save you from anything. Well, maybe, maybe in the future, the damnation of God. But that's it. In the end, you're just like me. You're no different than me. We don't believe that. There's a renewal. A real renewal. An actual renewal. That is an actual change. And it occurs in an instant. That's why regeneration and conversion can be used interchangeably in the creeds. And even in Scripture, in an instant a child of God is changed, and yet that radical change is something that's worked out more and more. It grows. It strengthens. Now, lastly, there's a third must. And it's this must that teaches us something about good works. And this too I want to bring up because this is being denied and has been denied in our churches, which is Christ gives good works a purpose. Some say there is no purpose. Good works, after all, are the fruits of faith. They're just fruits. Fruits just dangle on the tree. That's all they are. They just show up. They're just there. And we can admire them and we can look at them. Well, not too much because then you're dealing with them like the forbidden fruit. Got to be careful with these good works. No. Read the catechism. And part of the must is not simply Christ what Christ has done, what Christ is doing, but how Christ uses them. He gives them a purpose. God gives them a purpose. And you may look at that purpose from two perspectives. One is God. Thus far, those that might admit there's a purpose will, will admit to that one. That as the Catechism says, good works serve to glorify God. That's an amazing thing all by itself. I was reading Jeremiah 13 not so long ago, and that struck me. How when God is sending the prophet to chastise Israel for all their idolatry and wickedness and fornication that's going on, he has the prophet take a belt, a girdle that goes around a guy, 
take a brand new linen one. It's meant to be an ornament. It's meant to be around your chest. They go bury it by the Euphrates River. And then he has them go back and uncover it. And the thing's all wrecked. It's ruined. God said, that's what Israel's like. Israel, he says, was a girdle around me. A belt. An ornament. God says, it was to the glory and honor of my name. Among all the nations. Before all the world. People could see they're different. These people are different. They live different. They worship different. They act different. Everything about them is different. And they're different because of their God. Everybody saw that. And then when the people of God live wickedly in idolatry, what they do? God says, you're worthless. Worthless. Well, it's teaching us something. Now, how we live and how we behave reflects on God because God has made it so. If you even ask yourself why it is that God redeemed us, why is it that God delivers us, why is it that God renews us, that has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God. This is why it's so important that we don't make works that which we do to save ourselves. This is what's so important that we do not make works a part of our salvation in this sense, that they're our part, they're our cooperation with God so that in the end we're saved. No. No. They're part of our salvation in this sense. They're the work of God saving and delivering us. And they're that because it's the end, the, the goal, the fruit. It's the fruit of faith. It's what God works. And you ask yourself, but why does God do that? The answer is, well, not really because of you. It's for Him. So that all might see what God has done. Not what you do, what God has done. And they serve that purpose. God gives them that purpose. I don't give them that purpose. You don't. But we ought to recognize it. They're pleasing to God. They're what God delights in. The sacrifice of thanksgiving is something He delights in. The sacrifice you bring to atone, He abominates. He throws it up. He hates it. But the sacrifice of thanksgiving, He loves. And I could go on some more there. And what's amazing is realize that the good works and how they're defined are actually thanksgiving themselves. And that goes to show you how many things we might consider are good works that really aren't. Good works thank God and they praise God. So one of the chief good works is prayer. Prayer. Not our living as such, but prayer. Because they all must be thanking and praising God. Whenever we're thanking and praising ourselves, that's done a lot, you know. There are a lot of churches that do a lot of singing and if you examine their songs, they're going to be all songs that talk about what we do. Look at all the thanks and praise we bring, O oh Lord. Mm, be careful. Now you're thanking yourself and not the Lord. But be that as it may, there is a purpose with regard to us, for us, and toward us. And that in two ways that are brought out here, and one's very important because this too is denied. I want to repeat this. That everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits. By the fruits. The fruits thereof are good works. I'll rephrase. That everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by good works. Do I have to repeat that? Because that's true. It's true. This is another reason that there's a lot of people that can be filled with anxiety and depression and doubt their faith. There's, there's a couple reasons why that can be. The first is because people don't believe that their sins are really forgiven them. 
They don't really believe or trust in God to forgive all their sins. But the other reason, and it's closely related, it follows from the former, they live wicked and ungrateful lives. In the Catechism, in the Belgian Confession, and the Canons, I'll point out, there can be no assurance in that condition and state. There isn't. Well, why is that? Now notice carefully what the Catechism says. We may be assured of His faith. Not of salvation, not of all kinds of things, but of His faith. Now why is that? And the answer is because good works are the sure fruit of faith. Faith is never apart with them. Faith is never without them. So that the child of God, when he sees those fruits, he knows they are the fruits of his salvation received through faith, worked by God, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, and therefore he must have faith. There's no other way to have them. There's no other way to receive them. There's no other way to do them. It's impossible. And that's the way it is. And you know that to be true in your own life. Live a wicked and ungrateful life, you're going to be plagued with doubts. And you're going to discover you're living a wicked and ungrateful life in the first place because you don't really trust Jesus forgiven your sins, that He's redeemed you. It doesn't live in your soul. And then what follows is a wicked and grateful life. Conversely, the other follows. And inseparably follows. Infallibly follows. So that the catechism could use some very powerful language that if those good works aren't there, then you don't have faith. You must not have faith. You must be unconverted. Confessions are not afraid to speak that way. We are. We shouldn't be. We shouldn't be. Why? Because it's unbelief. There's another one, and that's toward others. It's related to this one. And it's that others may be gained to Christ. God uses as a means, our work, to witness to others. Now, the works don't gain them as such. Our witness doesn't gain them as such. But they are means that God uses. Uses to bring them His Word. Uses to bring them into church. Uses them to bring them under the preaching of the Gospel. Uses for all kinds of ways. With the result being that they who were formerly unbelievers and blasphemers and idolaters now are followers of God. That's an amazing thing all by itself. Forget about all the other purposes Christ gives works. What what about that one? That one all by itself is quite amazing. This is, beloved, I tried to articulate as plainly as I possible can, the riches, the riches of our salvation and the riches of our deliverance and the riches of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ here in the Lord's day. And the calling of Him is, believe that. Amen. Our Father, which art in heaven, O Lord, we thank Thee for this great, great salvation that we are given. A salvation from every aspect of sin. One that raises us from the dead and makes us live. Being alive to labor and work as Thy servants and friends in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. We give Thee, O Lord, all the thanks, all the honor, and all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.